0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode in which I discuss cases that are in the media at the moment as well as related true crime topics. Before we get into today's mini-sode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Stacy, Diane Belange, Tanya76, Stephen Tyrell, Rulani Mabasa, and Almarie Kleinhalt for all your support on Patreon, as well as Ilka Zenskiralyi for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. In addition to the shout outs and monthly exclusive episodes that Patreons get, I also now upload an ad-free version of every week's episode to Patreon. So if you prefer not to hear the ads, head over to Patreon and sign up for a minimum monthly contribution of just $1, which at the moment is about 16 rand. It's a pretty good deal. If you like discounts, because who doesn't, Head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs, Print Crowd for all your printing requirements, and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for a 10% discount and support the show at the same time. And you can also get 10% off when you order from wallpaper online by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser and parole officer to listen and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. As South Africa finally starts to catch up with the backlog in prosecutions caused in part by the pandemic, we've seen quite a few important convictions in long-standing cases come through recently, as well as trials starting up that many of us have been wondering about. One such conviction, which I was heartened to see come through, was that of David van Boeven. The murderer of 19-year-old Jessie Hess and her 85-year-old grandfather, Chris Lartigan. Jesse and Chris were found strangled to death in their home in Paro, Western Cape, in 2019. Jesse had also been raped. Van Boeven and his friend Taslim Ambrose were arrested relatively soon after the crime, but the trial saw many delays. Eventually, last month, Van Boeven, who is Jesse's second cousin, was found guilty and handed down two life sentences. Ambrose was acquitted of all charges against him except robbery with aggravating circumstances and given a six-year sentence. It's emerged that Jesse and Chris's murders represents yet another failure of our parole system. David Van Booven was out on parole on a rape conviction when he committed the rape and murders, and he has an additional separate case against him in Weinberg also for a rape committed while he was out on parole. He had been sentenced to 15 years in prison and was released on parole after serving just seven years. Jesse and Chris's family expressed that they were grateful for the convictions as they could now move on with their healing process. I will admit that I was concerned about this case as there'd been glitches with the physical evidence, but I'm really glad to see this conviction come through. I think about Jessie often, despite not having known her. If I stand in my garden at home, I can see the high school that she attended, and when her trial started, pupils from the school carried out a memorial walk in the streets around the school in memory of Jessie. I definitely want to cover Jessie and Chris's case in a full episode in the near future. Another long-awaited conviction and sentence also happened recently in the murder of 28-year-old Shekhofatse Pule. Shekhofatse was eight months pregnant when she was found shot to death and tied to a tree in Johannesburg in June 2020. Her murder would prompt horrified reactions from the entire country, with President Cyril Ramaphosa saying that South Africa was clearly one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a woman. The police investigation, which of course always starts with those closest to the victim, soon revealed a motive for the murder. The child Shekhofatso was pregnant with had been fathered by her boyfriend, Ntutuko Shoba. The man was married to someone else and had been having an affair with Shekhofatso. When she'd fallen pregnant, he'd allegedly tried to convince her to have an abortion but she'd refused as she felt that, as a qualified and working makeup artist, she could care for the child herself if need be. Shorba, who worked as a Forex analyst at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, had been concerned that his wife would find out about his infidelity if Shekho delivered the child. It was not necessarily his marriage he was worried about, but rather that his wife was about to come into an inheritance, that he very much wanted to benefit from. Shoba hired Musikayisi Malepane to kill Shereefatso. The man had already made one unsuccessful attempt on her life, before June the fifth, when she was lured to Shoba's home under the ruse of a shopping trip and then abducted by Malepane before being murdered. Malepane cut a deal with the state in which he agreed to testify against Shoba for a reduced sentence. The trigger man was sentenced to 20 years in jail, and recently Ntutoko Shoba was handed down a life sentence for masterminding the plot. Shekhofatso's unborn baby, who at eight months would likely have been able to survive outside the womb, also died when her mother was killed. Unfortunately, South African law does not allow for the baby to be added on as a second murder victim, but certainly the child who Shekho had already named Kamano was the second murder victim of her own father. Since her murder, Shekho name and face have become synonymous with the scourge of intimate partner violence that women in South Africa face. According to the Human Rights Organisation Centre for Constitutional Rights, the femicide rate in South Africa is five times the global average. According to international statistics last gathered in 2016, South Africa has the fourth highest rate of female interpersonal violent deaths in the world, after Honduras, Jamaica and Lesotho. Since murder, the outrage has done very little to quell the flood of violent murders against women though, and we've sadly seen many more instances of intimate partner and gender-based violence in the last two years. This constant flow of cases, like Fazo's, can make you feel very helpless, like nothing you do is going to make any difference, and it was with this feeling That I entered Women's Month this year, wondering if I decided to use the month to highlight some of these cases, how would I even go about choosing which deserve a voice? So I decided instead to focus on the women in our country who see the result of gender based and intimate partner violence on a daily basis in their work, and who have dedicated their lives to making a difference and fighting for justice. So this month's On True Crime South Africa's social media, you'll see me celebrating those women, the ones who are fighting back and being part of the solution. Another long-awaited case which has finally started to see its day in court recently is that of the murder of Megan Kramer. In August 2019, Megan disappeared from the farm she lived on in Philippi. Three men, including Jeremy Sires, who lived on the same farm, were arrested three days later in possession of Megan's vehicle. Sias later led officers to Megan's body. The man whose trial has recently started now claims that he did not kill Megan and that he only stole her car to take her for a joyride and happened to discover her body in the boot. He claims that he dumped her body in the place he later pointed out, because he was afraid he would be accused of killing her. As the trial continues, though, the evidence seems to be mounting up against Sias, with his timeline simply not adding up, and CCTV footage starting to point heavily in his direction. I will keep an eye on this case, and as soon as the proceedings are wrapped up, I'll definitely be covering it in full. In another high-profile case, the murder of 28-year-old Hilary Gaudy, a surprise arrest has added to the already mounting mystery around this strange and tragic case. Hilary, the daughter of former EFF Secretary General Godric Gaudy, went missing in April this year while on a shopping trip with her three-year-old daughter. The child was recovered unharmed, but sadly Hilary's body was found soon after. In the days after her murder, her father's political connections were a point of concern and many wondered if the murder had not perhaps been an assassination to send a message of some sort between political factions. Although a motive for her murder has yet to be made public, three men were arrested and charged relatively soon after she was found. And then in the last week, a fourth arrest was made, which has turned the case on its head. The man arrested in connection with Hillary's murder is alleged by police to also be connected to three other murders. If you're thinking hitman, you may not be entirely incorrect. But what makes this really strange is that the other women this suspect is accused of killing were all his partners. He's alleged to have been connected to the murder of his partner at the time in June in KZN. In that case, both his girlfriend and her sister were murdered at the same time. Then, just last week, the body of yet another of the man's partners was discovered in Sundra. If the man in question is positively linked to all of the murders, then according to the timeline, Hillary would have been the first. But perhaps she wasn't. Again, if the connections are correct, this would make the man a serial killer and a very strange one at that, if he worked with three others to kill Hillary and then committed these other murders on his own. One of the initial accused has been denied bail, and two of the others are waiting for their bail hearings. This is definitely one to keep an eye on, and despite all the mystery and intrigue, I hope that the most important goal here, justice for Hillary, is attained. I've had a few people asking whether there are any updates in the case of Lauren Dickerson, the South African mom who, after having immigrated with her family to New Zealand, is now accused of having murdered her three daughters. When this case first happened, and as I've said on this podcast before, I took the decision not to allow any discussion of it on the podcast's social media pages, because the level of emotion around it was just too high and we had very few facts available with which to have any constructive conversation. I decided that once Lauren's trial starts and some factual information is available, we can then hopefully have some useful conversations around this very tragic case. I think something that's added to the public's concern around this case is the seeming media embargo and Lauren's long psychiatric hold in New Zealand. For some, this seems to create the impression that she's been given special treatment, or that the justice process has been stalled. So I wanted to chat about the current status of the case, and hopefully clarify a few things. The reason that not much has been in the media is because the judge in the case has ordered that to protect the integrity of the future trial, media reporting in New Zealand, and as a result the rest of the world, should be limited. Some of the more recent reports that have come out around the case include that Lauren's husband, Graham, has returned to South Africa, while Lauren remains under arrest and in the care of a psychiatric facility in New Zealand. The psychiatric assessment process is very normal in a case like this, and we see it being done in most countries across the world, including South Africa, when it's believed that a crime may have either been psychologically motivated or that a psychological element may have impacted the accused's behaviour at the time. Considering the circumstances of this case, a mother alleged to have murdered her three children, it goes without saying that a psychological element is involved to some extent. Please note that this does not mean that anyone is trying to find an excuse for what may or may not have happened, because that's the next conclusion many jump to. What is happening at the moment actually serves the justice process. It's a vital part of ensuring that when Lauren's trial does start, she is firstly able to act in her own defence, and that all of the evidence is available to the court so that a fair and just decision can be made. I think we need to remember that this is not only to Lauren's benefit, but also to the benefit of her daughters, Maya, Carla, and Leanne, as they are the victims in this case. The case has been brought before the judge on several occasions already for pretrial motions. Lauren has been represented by her attorney at these appearances, and the judge gave her permission to be absent, so that her period of observation and treatment was not hampered. The trial was initially set to start in March 2023, but the date has now been moved to June 2023, after Lauren's lawyer requested a change of venue. The reason for this request is that New Zealand uses a jury system for its trials, and the defence was concerned that drawing a jury from the same community in which this polarizing crime occurred, would negatively impact Lauren's defense. Another aspect of this case that I wanted to briefly chat about is the fact that Lauren's attorney has entered pleas of not guilty on all three murder charges. Now, I've seen some people saying that this must mean she denies killing the girls, and that's not necessarily the case. A plea of not guilty simply means that the accused denies being guilty of the legal definition of the crime and that they have a defence which they will present during trial in the hopes of proving that they are not guilty. Even when someone is found not guilty in a court of law, that doesn't mean they haven't played a role in the crime that's alleged. It just means that their defence has successfully argued that the legal definition for the crime cannot be proven. So by entering a not guilty plea, Lauren Dickerson is not necessarily saying she didn't kill her daughters. She may just feel that she has a defense worth presenting which may make her not guilty of the crime in a legal sense. Of course the possibility does exist that she is claiming not to have played a role in the girls deaths, but no other party has ever been identified as having been involved in the crime, and I'm certain that if there was any evidence to point to another's involvement, there would have already been another arrest, which there hasn't. Really, we will only know when the trial starts in 2023, and even then, the information given out to the public in the early days may still be scant. While I fully understand the public in general wants enclosure in this horrific case, I think that we're all going to just have to be satisfied with the current situation and it's certainly not going to help anyone for people to be claiming special treatments or that the case is being swept under the rug. Lauren, Graham and the girls have family and friends in South Africa who are currently stuck in this limbo. They're grieving the loss of the girls while simultaneously, I'm sure, concerned for Lauren's well-being. Justice for Maya, Carla, and Leanne is the most important thing here. And that justice needs to be sought through the proper legal mechanisms available. We don't want the trial to come and go and for there to still be questions, because proper processes weren't followed. So as hard as it is, I think we all need to just accept that we are where we are right now, and that our confusion and frustration pales in comparison to those that loved the three girls and the Dickerson family. And that is your Spotlight minnesota for the week. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.